Hello and welcome to the History Machine podcast. This is episode six on Julius Caesar. I'm your host, Niall, and my co-host is... Cahill. Hello. So, Cahill, would you like to give a little brief introduction about the History Machine and what exactly it is? So, the History Machine is a neural network uh, trained on a database of historical battles to determine what should have happened in each battle. What odds should each general have had to win? What casualties should they have had? How likely was each commander to die or get captured? then compares this to what actually happened and gives the generals a rating based on the difference. Perfect. Okay, so to begin, uh, we'll say our uh, dictator, general, commander, whatever you want to call him, funnily enough, never an emperor, Julius Caesar. So to get started with Julius Caesar, we might give a little bit of a background to how he grew up, the time he was in, what exactly was happening around him, and what really formed this person, this individual, this really tour de force. Somebody who's so influential that up until World War I, there will be diplomatic leaders that will use his surname as a title. Yeah. And I mean, if you go to the... which is their word for king or leader, it comes from Caesar. Tsar, Kaiser, both derive from Caesar. So, uh, pretty influential guy. Definitely. And even Caesar is like a French pronunciation of the original pronunciation, which would be more towards Kaiser. So he's actually, his name would actually be Gaius Julius Kaiser, if we really wanted to go back and be very precise about it. But then again, we're going to call his subcommander Mark Antony, and I doubt he was called that. Yeah. So yeah. We'll mispronounce enough that it, we will. it would be foolish and arrogant to try and be pedantic. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll only be exposing ourselves later on when we, when we mispronounce <laughs> some battles. Pretty much so. But I think uh, the important thing we get across here is really the facts and the figures and just what makes this person so incredibly influential. And that really, we're talking about him 2,000 years later. There's not really that many people who are this influential throughout history. And definitely we got to delve into why that is the case. So as a brief little introduction, Julius Caesar grew up right after Rome had been invaded twice by one of its own commanders called Sulla. And the important thing about this is when Rome was founded uh, with Romulus and Remus, a key attribute was that a Roman army would never be allowed to return to the city itself. And due to a little bit of political shenanigans, Sulla found himself in charge of a couple of legions. And with that, he was going to be stripped of power and instead decided to march on Rome and form a full dictatorship. And after that, purges and counter purges and a lot of murders and Julius Caesar actually escaped this time and wouldn't come back really until Sulla was no longer alive. Sulla funnily enough uh, will come back to him definitely and have an episode on him himself mm-hmm. because very unique individual fantastic without going too much into it Sulla is very much the blueprint for what Caesar will want to do. Yeah. He will become dictator of Rome, he will change a lot of laws and when he's finished and he retires and, and Sulla does get to retire and that will tell you what kind of a calibre of a human being he is <laughs> he returns everything back to the Senate and it's like well Rome's a republic again, there you go, I fixed everything even <laughs> though after shattering yeah. the entire political infrastructure. I do feel that if, if Caesar hadn't happened we'd be talking about Sulla in a lot of similar terms and Definitely. He he mm. he really yeah, as you said, blueprint if you if you look up Sulla after looking up Caesar, you'll notice a ton of similarities, a lot of the same beats in the story. Definitely. And uh even from the cold, unfeeling AI of the history machine, it actually regards him as having the best wins over expectation of any general in our database so far. So Sulla definitely one to look into. He's pretty phenomenal. 
So, to give a little brief introduction about uh, Caesar, uh, in his youth, he was actually kidnapped by pirates when he was about 15. He was ransomed back to his family, and then they raised a bit more money by borrowing it, and they captured said pirates and crucified them. So, <laughs> that will give you a, a little bit of an idea for what a kind of a person he is. And, of course, the fact that, uh, you know, when they were initially saying how much they were going to ransom for, Caesar just went to the pirates and, you know, kind of in the, got in their ear and went like, you can ask for more. For <laughs> like, yeah. I can demand more money than that. There's very few ransom situations where it's like, <laughs> we want 10 million. And you go, actually, you could get 15 if you really want it. Just, <laughs> just ask for 15. They'll give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm worth more than this. <laughs> He's going to be a terrible haggler, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Caesar's early political career, he will come from a very noble family that has a great history, but there's been nobody really in his family for quite a few generations who's done anything quite significant. So he's got that, he, he reeks of old money, the idea of old nobility that has this rich, fantastic history, but right now they're not doing much and he kind of wants to get back into the game. So what Caesar will do is he's going to borrow through the nose to run his political careers. And for most of his life, he will be plagued by debtors just trying to pay people back for running extravagant games, for running, uh, paying money for elections, uh, paying lawyers effectively for civil suits. There's so much expense that Caesar will get into. He will just borrow money to pay off other creditors, to borrow money to pay off other creditors. And um, he will become effectively uh, a very, very powerful, influential person in Rome, but will find himself in dire straits at times. I think from here, the real important thing to mention about Caesar and where it first takes off is Caesar, along with two other very powerful men in Rome, possibly the first and second most powerful men in Rome, Pompey and Crassus. They will form the first triumvirate. In summary, Pompey has a nickname, Pompey the Great, or sometimes Pompey the Butcher, and he is the military man of Rome. He has three triumphs to his name, and a triumph is very much like a ticker tape parade that's celebrated for Roman commanders when they come back from conquering a territory, and they get to march. It's the only exception where you get to march your army into Rome and have a celebration. Now, for a little bit of an example, a triumph will happen approximately once on average every four years. The highest office in, in Roman society is a consul, and they elect two of those. So you can picture the consul like a president, and they elect two presidents, and they elect two a year. So you're eight times more likely to become the president of Rome than you are to actually get one of these ticker tape parades. So the idea that Pompey has three of them is outrageous. The second person involved in our triumph is Crassus. And Cahill, if you want to talk a little bit about Crassus and just explain who exactly he is. Crassus is, simply put, the checkbook, the bankroller of, of the triumvirate. He was the richest man in Rome, which, you know, if you consider this is like the richest, already, you know, one of the richest empires in the world and everything else. Mm. Phenomenally wealthy. Also somewhat going through a bit of a midlife crisis where he wants glory. Uh, he wants, you know, he, he didn't get a triumph of his own. He was never the great general that Pompey was. They were pre-triumvirate. They were, you know, somewhat kind of political en enemies. They were kind of, begrudgingly brought into this alliance really by Caesar, basically because they were both involved in putting down the a, a very large slave rebellion. And Pompey got all the credit, essentially. Well, Crassus did not. 
This is actually quite interesting because that particular rebellion is known as the Third Servile War. And it's known as the Third Servile War because it's the third time that effectively slaves pulled together and had a massive rebellion. And in this war, there's a very famous slave that I'm sure everybody will know, especially because Hollywood has made him quite famous, Spartacus. And it will actually be Crassus who decides to pay for his own army to take down Spartacus. And the reason nobody else really wants to take down Spartacus is when you form an army in Rome, what you want to do is you want to go to another country, you want to strip it of resources, you want to lay it bare, you want to take home a load of slaves with you, a load of booty, a load of money. Um, You'll have a lot effectively of corruption happening as you'll be lining your own pockets. You'll become phenomenally wealthy and then you'll probably, if you're very lucky, get a triumph and have a great time. Although the problem with this is with the slave war, nobody wants to do that because you're not going to get any glory for beating a slave army. You're also not really going to get any booty because the whole idea is you're probably going to be killing all of these slaves. And slaves tend to not have much money or resources and they tend to not have any land either. So there was all of the cons, none of the pros. So Crassus found himself in a unique position to say, well, I actually have so much money. I can just pull together my own army, take these guys out. I don't know if I'll get a triumph over this, but I'll definitely get some recognition. So it is Crassus who does take out Spartacus, does end that servile war. However, Pompey, on his way back from Hispania, which is modern day Spain, finds 5,000 stragglers from the third servile war, kills them and kind of goes, I've been here a day or two and I just saved the day. (laughs) It was all Pompey, number one, baby. (laughs) To which Crassus replies, well, we'll see about that, and gets 6,000 POWs and crucifies them for 100 miles on the way to Rome. Just to kind of go, well, how do you explain these? They're very petty people, the two, Pompey and Crassus, both very, very ambitious. And Julius Caesar does effectively form the triumphant by proposing to these two, We're the three most powerful men in Rome. We shouldn't be at each other's throats. If we want anything done, what we can do is just uh, agree to it and get it done and effectively have, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And then the problem is if one of us decides to get a bit too uppity, the other two will be able to take him down. So it's a, it destroys any semblance of democracy or republic values. The Senate, which is, you know, the hundreds or so of senators that are meant to be passing laws and debating and arguing, whatever, they are totally cut out because these three men are powerful enough to do effectively whatever they want. Essentially, you have one guy who is the most revered general who no one would want to cross, you know, in, in a military situation. You have Crassus who can pay anyone else, you know, anyone who's corrupt off. And then you have Caesar who is just a, a very, very popular politician and very popular with the average person. So yes, kind of, again, cross him, you know, maybe your constituents... Or, you know, their servants won't be too happy. Very much so. The big thing about this, when this triumvirate is formed, what happens is Caesar is made consul. So effectively, Caesar is made president. One of two presidents as well, because the Romans are a little paranoid about somebody getting singular power. Kind of rightfully so, as the story will will show. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of his deals for being part of the triumvirate is he wants to be consul. So... This little cabal of three people, they're effectively going to be giving themselves very high ranking government positions back and forth all the time. Caesar then was successfully made consul, but he gets himself into a lot of debt. The only way to solve this is, as we mentioned earlier, get a big army, find a nice chunk of territory and tear it apart. So this leads nicely into conquering Gaul. So following on from consulate, um, the, the usual tradition was, you know, give them a governorship as their retirement. Now, initially, because... Rome politicians, they weren't stupid. They kind of got that this is an ambitious guy with a ton of power. They tried to 
basically put him in charge of Parks and Rec. They basically put him in charge of the forests uh, to defend those, you know, go over there, defend this bee, so on. Um, he, he, like, was having none of it. He pulled some strings. He got himself put in charge of northern Italy, uh, part of the Balkans. Like, he got a lot of territory. He got a couple of legions. And uh, he felt the best way, really, to get himself out of debt was to make more money through slaves by taking Gaul. Gaul being modern-day, say, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, uh, northern Italy, big, big territory, massively increasing the size of, of the Roman Empire if he takes it. The sheer volume of land that would be added is is crazy to the Romans. This is this is actually a very ambitious, uh, very ambitious project. But funny enough, there are people already there, and these people are Celts. Now, we use the term Celts really loosely because to be Celtic is... It's a very strange one because you could say that the Gauls are Celts. You could also say that the Celtic people stretch as far as the Ukraine. So it's common that a lot of Romans and Greeks and other areas that would be settled and civilized and have a lot of writing would write about them and group them all kind of together under one banner, which would be Celtic or Celts. So the Gauls are a separate or a sub-faction, we'll say, of Celts. So if we use the term Celts, we're using it very loosely. Yeah. But this is effectively uh, where Caesar wants to go and conquer these people and bring them into the yoke of empire. Uh, funnily enough, the Gauls, or these ones, are accused of the Romans, are thought by the Romans to be one of the Celts that six or seven hundred years ago sacked Rome. As in, when they went down to Rome, they sacked it, took it apart, and went somewhere else. And um, the Romans have never really forgotten that. They're, they're ones to definitely keep their history recorded. And uh, they're very vindictive and <laughs> kind of revenge-filled when they need to be. So it is going to be these Gauls that are going to cause quite a, bit of, quite a bit of a problem. But they're going to cause quite a bit of a problem when the Romans decide to effectively start some beef with them. So let's start, if we don't mind, with the battle Magitobrigia. So this one... Just want to touch on as well, because Caesar kind of needed a better excuse than I need to get out of debt to start this war. Um, or, you know, a few hundred years ago, these people sacked Rome. Again, it's not it's not quite good enough. But um, as we said, like the, the Gauls were very kind of loosely defined people. Some were aligned with Rome, some were allied with Rome. One of their allies had only a couple of years earlier been attacked by another alliance of Gauls, plus uh, some German tribes, the Suebi. So Rome was able to say, hey, you know, if, if this alliance, if this keeps building up, this will be a real threat up in, uh, you know, north of us. Just these terrifying barbarians, maybe they'll come sack Rome again. We have to nip this in the bud. So the Romans can be paranoid at times. And it, it, it's, it's expected paranoia because they have had several invasions, particularly from Germanic and Celtic people coming down from the north. So they're rightfully so paranoid that they may be invaded. But Caesar is using this as a pretext to effectively have a preemptive strike. That I will take these guys out now, bring them into the Roman Empire. Uh, well, it's not an empire just yet, but bring them into the Roman Republic. Uh, subdue them, culture them, civilize them. We'll probably end up using them as auxiliaries. Uh, they'll probably provide troops to, to the Republic. But we should really take them now while we still have the chance. And while they're still loosely defined. So we're really going to kind of skim over a lot of the Gallic Wars because... Most of it, if you want to read about it, Caesar wrote all about it himself and bigged him up. It was used very much as a propaganda tool. He wrote down all the details of all the battles. The typical thing was like, oh, there were loads of them and it was really tough, but we pulled through and beat them in the end. But um, by, by and large, the main notes are they took advantage of the Gauls, kind of different tribal allegiances and everything. It was very, you know, divide and conquer. This yes. is a real 
perfect example where they would get the goals fighting one another, then swoop in with whichever one they were allied with, and then suddenly change from an alliance to kind of a puppet state, and then they were just totally under Roman control. And this kind of repeated again and again over years, but a lot of the goals kind of, they started to cop onto this, they started to band together and kind of realize if we don't unite now, if we don't form some kind of coalition, we're just going to be part of Rome. And they did this under a leader called Vercingetorix. So Vercingetorix, where to even begin about this person? His father would be killed for trying to become a king. Fully enough, the Celts actually have a fairly convoluted, complex system of government that involves a lot of Druids, it involves a lot of uh, elected positions, and they, like the Romans, do not like having kings in charge of particular sections of Celtic tribes. So they're usually kind of like unions and confederations and combinations. But I think a very important thing to mention about this right now is this particular style of warfare that the Romans are going to bring to Gaul. This is peak Rome. A generation before this, a fellow named Marius, Gaius Marius, who would be consul seven times, will effectively reform the Roman military machine and he will have it that the state pays for the soldiers equipment that soldiers do not have to have land to be in the legions now so the legions are loaded with effectively plebeians or poor romans but um they're going to make up the ranks of the roman empire they're going to be uniform they're going to be heavily armored they're going to have chain mail heavy shields they're going to have like spears but everything is paid for by the roman state and the generals that are in charge of these armies uh, like the Sullas and the Caesars and the Pompeys, they will effectively pay their troops, you know, based on whatever they raid and what they do. And you will find that these legions will be fanatically loyal to their commander because their commander is the one who's going to make the deals with them. It will be like if I were to sit down right now and say, well, you know what? I talk to a legion and I say, guys, if we take this place, I'm going to make sure that when the city is sacked, you get to keep most of the loot. And if... It's not me in charge of the army. Somebody else could come in and say, well, listen, that was a private agreement you had with a previous commander. That's not my uh, prerogative at all. In fact, if you do sack the city or whatever booty you collected, I'm going to maybe recollect that and distribute it to some of my troops or, or, you know, keep it for myself or give it back to the state. So you will find that legions at this time will be fanatically loyal to their commander. And... The troops that are uniform, that are very heavily armoured, they are heavy infantry. They are drilled, they are coordinated, they are organised, they have a top-down system, they have centurions, effectively like modern-day sergeants, they have a very complex, skillful, laid-out, consistent type of unit, and that is the legionnaire. Now, because Rome is going through a bit of uh, economic problems, in terms of, I'll say, social economic problems, because it means that they effectively don't have much of a middle class. Their middle class is very, very wealthy, as in they're merchants and traders. They have senators, who are the aristocrats, and they have the plebeians, who are just poor people. So, generally, historically, the Romans would provide their equites, which is their middle class, they would be the knights of the Roman legions. But because of the social economic problems at the time, Rome will outsource, like a company, most of their cavalry to effectively allies that don't have this problem, that people can afford a horse. So we will find for most of these battles that Caesar will actually have the majority of his cavalry being Celtic or Germanic allies, because simply the Roman state doesn't have the calibre of people who yeah. can afford a horse. 
I did go on a bit of a tangent there just for a moment to kind of explain a, about how well drilled and coordinated the, the Romans are. But their counterparts are effectively Celts who famously will fight sometimes near naked, yeah. cover themselves in blue paint and uh, will charge in ferociously with a lot of energy and just smash into the enemy hoping that they will, you know, frightfully run away. And they'll, you know, they'll use a bit of spears, javelins, slings, that kind of a thing. But they won't effectively have the same level of heavy armor. They will have decent cavalry, but in all sense, it will be kind of a little bit of an uncoordinated blob or mass running at the enemy trying to take them down. And these Roman troops that are state-sponsored are going to be well-drilled and well-ready for this. Yeah, so Vercingetorix, looking at the, the stats that the History Machine gives them, it does kind of tie in with what you were saying. The database now, we only have a couple of his battles in the database, and he has one win, one loss, so his wins over expectation, it's about average, maybe a little below that. His casualties dealt above expectation, and his casualties sustained above expectation, they're both, you know, significantly above average. So it ties in with what you're saying. The Celts, basically, they're kind of the glass cannon archetype. They have an incredible charge. They're really ferocious. Like physically, they were on average much bigger than the Romans, much stronger. They had good cavalry. You know, and as we said, the, the Romans would outsource a lot of their cavalry to some of the other Celtic tribes. The uh, <laughs> the Aegui specifically is one that will come up in a minute. Um, but yeah, we, we just see that like the Celts, they can deal out a good charge. But once they get into sustained battle, especially against an army that's as organized as the Romans and won't just retreat instantly they won't break quickly they just cannot hang on against them um they they just falter over time they kind of run out of steam very quickly but i do want to mention very significantly with vercingetorix the database has 17 of caesar's battles this is his first loss yes and that's going to tell you something about vercingetorix as an individual and really that he's definitely the first major challenge caesar has so at the moment, Caesar is a, a young proconsul, not too militarily experienced, does have a lot of powerful legions that are effectively are well-drilled, well-managed, and let's say have a little bit of instu you know, institutional knowledge behind them. But this, as Cahal just mentioned, will be the first loss for him under this Celtic chieftain who has effectively united all of these tribes against Caesar. And that will be the Battle of Dracovia. So this battle, 52 BC, Caesar's first defeat, it was essentially a failed siege, and it was just a combination of bad organisation on the Roman part and maybe a bit of overconfidence, combined with just the fact that Vercingetorix, he was opportunistic. He, he knew, like he knew that the Gauls didn't have a good chance to beat Rome. But if he spotted any little advantage he could, he would seize on it. So in this battle, because, you know, Rome had some Gallic tribes on their side or aligned with them or maybe, you know, at least enemies of their enemies, sometimes it got a bit confusing. And uh, the Aegean tribe, who provided Rome with a lot of cavalry, had recently had a big defection over to Vercingetorix. Some of these had recently been defeated. A lot of the kind of stragglers from that army decided that they would go back to Rome or some of the ones who had been loyal all along went back to Rome. However, when they emerged at this siege, Romans initially kind of thought that they were more Celts coming in to support Vercingetorix. The Roman lines just got kind of confused. They started going in the wrong way. And already they were kind of going for a frontal assault. They weren't just sieging Vercingetorix out. They were trying to end this quickly. Everything got confused and Vercingetorix just went in, had a solid charge. He couldn't take out Caesar's army fully, and this is something that we will see with Caesar's losses. Like, 
Caesar was very good, at, I think, at judging when it was time to get out of these situations and avoid having his army totally wiped out. But it was significant. There were definitely thousands of men, you know, either either killed or wounded in this on the Roman side. History Machine, it had it as a 50-50 battle, roughly, starting off. Okay. Casualties sustained by Vercingetorix's side are very low, like very kind of well below what would be expected, while the casualties dealt out to the Roman side was about 30% higher than expected. Now, this would be definitely a, a phenomenal accomplishment because, as I said, the, the Celts are not as well equipped. They're not as well trained. They're not as well fortified or or effectively even financed or organized as the Romans. So to deal an extra third damage than normally expected would be pretty outrageous. Yeah, and it does just highlight person Gedrick's like, if he if he had the opportunity, he, he could deal damage. and He's the real deal. Goals as a whole, and maybe this is why... Rome wanted to take them out so badly. They were getting more sophisticated. It was, you know, through contact with Rome, really, both in peacetime and in wartime, the Roman innovations were rubbing off on them. They were starting to learn from them. Mm. And uh, yeah, this is a good example of them being able to counter it. Yeah. So I suppose it's actually, uh, in a weird way, Caesar kind of pretext of let's go in here and take these guys out before they actually become technologically advanced to be a major threat, he is speeding up that process by forcing an invasion. But anyway, so this is Caesar's first loss. There's a very heavy cavalry charge. He's able to recover from it. We will actually move on a little bit towards this and talk about probably Caesar's most famous battle, one that's kind of outlandish and very visual and it's quite impressive. This would be the Battle of Alicia. Now, I'll give a little bit of a background to it. This does involve Vercingetorix again. He is held up in a fortress of Alicia, this big Celtic stronghold that has, you know, impressive walls and fortifications. And the Romans are a strange army at this point that they're kind of half warrior, half construction worker. They will like build fortifications every time they camp. If they stay somewhere long enough, they'll build a fort. They'll build like a huge compound. They will just nonstop build, you know, like the Romans are effectively famous for building roads and building fortifications. And they have things like, you know, powerful catapults. They, they run battles like a, a like a real-time strategy game, essentially, where it's like, it's not just, you know, tactics and maneuvers. It's also like you're, you're building up almost a miniature city here just to like to keep things running along and keep the resources coming in. Very much so, yeah. Now, they're quite dependent as well at this time, fully enough, the Romans, when they're in Gaul, on like Celtic allies providing them with resources and supplies and cavalry and food. So it can get very messy at times for Caesar and Gaul. But the Battle of Alicia is very interesting because Vercingetorix is held up in this fortress and Caesar comes up with a conclusion of, well, if he's walled, how about we wall him in with a wall we built? Yeah. So two can play at this game. Vercingetorix basically has huge numbers in this, but Caesar kind of sees that and goes like, you know, if we... Make sure there is absolutely no way they can sneak in supplies. They're going to be starved out in no time. This will be a quick siege. So yeah, what better way to do that than to... I, I heard you like walls. How about put a wall inside your wall? Yeah, yeah. Build the wall. Just The wall just got 10 feet higher. <laughs> but um, upon hearing this effectively, the Gauls go, holy crap, the Romans are building a wall outside of our walls situation. They're going to siege us and, you know, stop us getting supplies. It's going to be terrible. And the Celts call for reinforcements, which they're going to get. And then Caesar finds himself in an awkward position where he's like, well, I am surrounding a city by building walls to wall them in. And if an army comes in and attacks me, well, then I'm going to find myself in a tricky position. So I think the only way out of this, think Caesar, think, I build another wall. So now you have a siege within a siege. In the other direction. It's... 
It's a very strange situation. It's a, it is. It's very strange. But it's it's almost in a weird way. It's definitely like tactically brilliant yeah. to, you know, but it's it's almost childish of like, uh, I'm going to build a wall over here. And then it's yeah. like, well, they're going to invade us from behind. Oh, well, then I'm going to build another wall. <laughs> we'll see how they do. So this battle is very interesting because, as I said, it is a siege within a siege. So you can picture that the Roman camp is effectively a donut around a fortress. You know, that, that they're, uh, they're going to be attacked from in the front and behind. And the interesting thing about this, uh, the Battle of Lycia, it's, it's, yeah. it is effectively going to be, there's going to be a double Celtic army attacking the Romans. And they find themselves in a very awkward, complex position and, and situation. So there's probably, Caesar at this point has 10 to 11 legions. And the legions are very, you know, kind of organised and... Um, Structured and well well maintained. So there's approximately sixty to seventy thousand Romans here with their allies as well, and they're going to be effectively attacking. The modern estimates are about seventy to a hundred thousand. So Caesar will claim more than those numbers, but it was still big big number advantage for the Celtic side. Oh, he will, he will. He's still very impressive. So we'll find in this battle. This is where a couple of people make their names. There is Julius Caesar obviously. Mark Antony will be heavily involved in this. A Titus Labinus as well, who is effectively like Caesar's right-hand man or second in charge. He's yeah. a very uh, he's a very important character because he will come up later. These are effectively are some pretty big commanders involved in this sieging against uh, Vercingetorix. So the siege does happen. Um, the Romans effectively find themselves in an unusual situation, as I said, that it's a siege within a siege. So actually, Carl, if you don't mind, we'll just go into the stats of what happens uh, to the Romans when they win this battle with this siege within a siege. So the history machine, uh, again, interestingly, had this as roughly 50-50. You know, Romans, kind of the typical thing, Romans have the better army composition, they have more organised army, but the Celts just have sheer numbers. Um, normally, in a siege, there'd be an advantage for one side, or you know, for the defence side, but you know, really, there's no other uh, precedent for this. Inter- like, the siege within a siege, history machine just kind of, like, cancels it out. In terms of casualties dealt out, it is high on both sides. It is about 17% higher for the Romans, but it's about 40% higher than expected for the Celts. So this is pretty much crushes their last major resistance. Um, This is, like, this is the battle that ends the Gallic Wars. And also significantly following on from this battle, Vercingetorix and other subcommanders were taken prisoner. This is it for the Gauls. The main reason they'll be taken prisoner is Caesar is looking at this and he's just conquered an area the size of effectively modern day France and Belgium combined. And this is almost a guaranteed triumph in terms of there's simply so much has been so much has been conquered, so many slaves are going to be brought back, so much loot is just going to be brought back to Rome. He's like, this is a very super impressive conquering. It uh, Caesar, who was famously in debt for most of his political career, yeah. he's now effectively in the black. He's all of his debt paid off. He's now fabulously wealthy. I'd like to point out as well that just in, in terms of the timeline, this is very good timing because uh, we mentioned the first triumvirate. His bankroller, Crassus, uh, has died the year before in the Battle of Carhe. And I'd like to go a bit into that. Uh, so Crassus, who is one of the three members, I would say the original members of the Triumphant, he effectively goes through, for want of a better phrase, a midlife crisis. He is nearly 60 years of age and he realises 
that unlike Caesar and unlike Pompey, he doesn't really have any military successes. He does have that whole Spartacus rebellion, but Pompey kind of claimed credit for it. Pompey is a much more famous commander and people would attribute it to Pompey anyway. So Crassus kind of under pretext of being the proconsul of Syria, effectively the governor of that area, goes, it's time to invade these Parthians. Now, the Parthians are a very interesting kingdom at this time. They've recently conquered an area in where Persia used to be, effectively. They are the descendants of horse nomads. So think of the kind of Scythian horse archers. They recently have been involved in the development of a very powerful bow. And this will be very key to this battle. But Crassus will pull together, effectively, with his, with his uh, blank check, a huge army. He will actually up the percentage of cavalry because he realizes he's going to go to Asia and cavalry country. He will hire a couple of guides and he will march through the deserts and try and go and invade Parthia. Effectively looking to start a fight under no pretext, with no, uh, with no justification. But it's kind of, as I said, it feels like a midlife crisis. It's like somebody buying a Ferrari or deciding, hey, you know, I'm still young and fit and I can still do whatever. It's like, no, you are a very old man. You should be considering retirement. And now you're now in this you know, the autumn to winter years of your life, you're looking for triumphs and parades and recognition because, as I said, he's a very, very wealthy man and he's made his wealth in at sometimes very shrewd ways. He's a bit of a property speculator. Infamously, what he used to do is uh, Rome does not have a fire brigade. It does not have a state-sponsored fire brigade. If you want a fire brigade, it's a private enterprise. That's a thing. But he would go to areas of Rome that were burning down. He would effectively go to somebody, well, your house is on fire. Uh, I want to buy it. And, and I'll buy it for maybe 10% of its original price. And someone would say, well, this house, it's been a good house and it's falling apart and I'm watching it go up in flames. Uh, I'll sell it to you. And he'd very often go to the neighbours and say, hey, there's a fire here and it's probably going to spread to your house too. Do you want me to buy it for a very small percentage of what it's actually worth? And them looking at a fire about to engulf effectively their home go, yeah, I think I will. You know, I'll cut my losses right now. And upon the sale going through, he just like, bang, bring in his own private fire brigade and uh, put out the flames. So he is like the libertarian nightmare of just like the crucial public services only being available if you sell your house to them yeah very much so <laughs> yeah he's terrible uh so he's effective he's a very shrewd calculated finance man but now he kind of goes in the, the true roman sense of it i want to make my money i want to get rich i want you know i'm already rich i need the fame i need the i need to be this phenomenal political and military figure so in the midlife crisis scenario he's going to invade parthia so in the battle of carhe we're going to effectively see two different forms of military strengths against each other. One is going to be incredibly cavalry heavy. In fact, everyone in this battle on the Parthian side will be on horseback. And the Romans are going to be this, as we mentioned, the heavy infantry, chain mail, heavy shields, swords, very well regimented, organised, and they're going to take on the Parthians. Now, traditionally, when you take on cavalry like this, the Roman rule of thumb would be to leave your army in a very long line to match the cavalry. Crassus feels quite strange in the sense of sometimes you get somebody who says I'm going to try something for the sake of doing it and this feels like he almost doing something to kind of have a story about it or to uh, kind of say I tried something innovative and new and there's a reason you don't always try something innovative and new. He formed a big square which works well against cavalry. You give him to that. In fairness to him like Parthian army it was about 10% cataphract, and they're like proto-knights, essentially. Like, they are, you know, a, th a thousand years early, they are basically knights. 
So he hollow squares. It's a good way to deal with the cavalry charge, because if someone charges you, yeah, maybe they break through the row, but then they're suddenly surrounded. You know, it's a solid idea. The problem is the other 90% of the army was horse archers. And they're not charging in. They're just getting within range, hitting you when you can't hit them, and then, like, you know, riding back again. So it just does nothing for them. Now, what's crazy about this as well is the Romans at the time are used to Greek archers and Mediterranean archers, and they have a much weaker bow, and the Roman armour can deal with that. So the Romans have a formation that's known as the Tetsudo, which is like the turtle formation. So they have a nice couple of rows of shields, and then the rows behind them, they all, so there's this lovely square, and the rows behind them, you get your big, heavy, rectangular shield, put it above your head, and we're very slowly marching forward. And it's kind of like, well, these arrows are just going to bounce off and deflect. The problem is... These nomadic, recently settled nomadic horse archers have the modern equivalent of like this new bolt action sniper rifle. You know, they uh, and they will just the Romans to their horror will discover that this bow is so powerful, it will actually punch through their shields. And there will be Romans effectively who are it's, it's very hard to imagine that you say if you're a Roman legionnaire and you form the Tetsudo formation and you're under this nice shade of shields and there's a little bit of light coming through the gaps in it and you're slowly walking forward and all you hear is a big thump. Instead of normally hearing that little patter of rain of light archery, you're hearing thumps and cracks and crunches and there's effectively arrows coming through and stapling your arm through the shield as the arrow comes through there will be romans who will report on this that there will be arrows fired up come down and go through their feet yeah uh so they're sitting there going holy crap these things these arrows are coming through and it's kind of like well hold the you know so logic would dictate what do we do now it's like well hold the formation they'll run out of ammunition funnily enough the parthians had a little bit of innovation themselves being a bit of a combination of you know the nomadic horse archers and their strategies and tactics and ways but also having a certain amount of culture and civilization, they will have men running around on camels to these horse archers, reloading them with arrows. It's just like, it's it's a nightmare matchup. It's a clash of styles and it's a nightmare for the Romans. Like, if you review, like, their only defense is something that, like, the, the main disadvantage is that Parthian army has way better mobility and way better range. Rome is sacrificing their own mobility in their defense. They're basically just standing there with their shields over them waiting for the enemy to run out of ammunition, which isn't happening because they're more organized. Serena, the enemy general, as you said, like he had carbines set up. And there's just, like, really, they just, they run out of ideas. They have nothing to counter with at all. Um, about 75% of the Roman army was wiped out by the end of it. Several aquilae, which were the Roman standards, and, like, basically legions were disbanded if those got captured. Uh, they lost several of them in this battle. And uh, at the same time, Parthia, they lost less than 0.5% of the army that they committed to this battle. It, it was nothing to them. It was just like bully, just like holding the head of the smaller kids. You know, the other kids just swinging their arms. They can't reach them. So they're just like... They're just getting... Yeah, they're getting tortured. There's two more things I'd like to mention about this battle before we move on from it. And the first is Crassus's son was in this battle and he was involved in a cavalry charge that did not go well and was killed and then his head would be paraded around during the battle. And at this point, Crassus will see that his son has been murdered and effectively have the guts of a breakdown. Uh, the second thing to involve is there is a strategy 
that is very common among the Mongols and the Scythian horse archers and other nomadic horse riders that the Romans will encounter and give the name to this. And this is something called a Parthian shot. So infamously, the horse archers have this kind of strategy of a feigned flight where they'll pretend they're running away, but really they're not running away. And they will retreat a little bit and kind of encourage you to run after them and maybe take them down. This is where we chase them. This is where we deal our casualties. And the Parthian shot, which Parthia and these these horse archers get the honour of having it named after them, they will be able to flip around on the saddle, draw an arrow and fire backwards. And to the Romans chasing them, this is like, holy... They're able to fire backwards. And when they do, like, if we're chasing them, we're just actually taking very heavy fire. So after this battle, Crassus will effectively sue for peace. Um, He will go and meet the Parthians or... He will go meet the Parthians and unfortunately, this is where it kind of gets a little bit hazy. A couple of things might have happened. The first thing is we don't know if Crassus went in there all Roman arrogant because the Romans are notoriously arrogant negotiators and dealers and this is a a heavy loss. It might have been an ambush by the Parthians. We don't know. Maybe, as I said, the Romans insulted them and this happened. But long story short, Crassus will be captured. He will be tied down. Gold will be melted and it will be poured down his throat. And he will die very... uh, Game of Thrones. You can see where that inspiration comes from. Yeah, any any Game of Thrones fans, you'll now now you know the reference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, his head then will be cut off, and his his uh, skull will be removed, and eventually used for props in Parthian plays. Yeah, so we'd like to go into the stats for the Battle of Carrie. So yeah, just before we move away, um, so I think we've established going through all the details of that battle, it was a terrible idea, and the. History Machine totally agrees. Um, it only gave Crassus like a 30% chance to win this, even though he had a big army, had a big, you know, this is a, a kind of army composition that usually the History Machine rates quite highly. But up against horse archers, like, our, I don't think our database is, you know, it, it only goes up kind of to... It only goes up to the year 0 AD, yeah, so, uh, roughly. So mm. so it just, it, it hasn't yet seen a solid counter to a horse archer-based army. You know, the Mongols are still over a thousand years away. People won't have it figured out then. So, like, it's definitely not figured out at this stage, especially when they now have better archer, you know, better bows than they even have, have in Rome. So it felt really low chance for Crass to win this. Casualties dealt, it actually doesn't have that high above expectation. It just expected the casualties to be as ridiculously high as they were for the Romans. And I think the craziest thing we mentioned, uh, Crass's son, when the subcommanders got killed in this battle. History Machine, normally, it only has like maybe 2-3% chance of a commander getting killed or captured in a given battle. Yes. It had it about 10 times higher odds that some that one of the commanders was going to die in this. Because they just had such crazy mobility like they could swoop in and take out whoever they want whether they're leading the army or just a you know soldier like there's rome just had no counter so terrible terrible idea on crassus's part so uh but around after this time caesar is now going to come back from gaul but just before he does he does receive news that his daughter julia who is married to pompey dies in childbirth and this is a really awkward position because even though there were only two members of the triumphant left having Pompey 
as a son-in-law, funny, even though Pompey is older than Caesar, uh, was a really convenient political situation where, listen, we still have ties with each other. And famously, Pompey really loved his wife. And I know this sounds uh, a little bit heartless, but uh, Romans at the time wouldn't necessarily marry or guarantee to marry for love. They'd mostly be marrying for political reasons. And it was a very nice convenience, uh, a little bit of a cherry on top, that Pompey was absolutely infatuated with his wife, Julia. And this obviously broke him a bit. But once she died, he no longer had any connection to Caesar. And because their child also died in child in during childbirth, um, he would not actually have no connection at all. So Caesar will lose a grandchild. Pompey will, will lose a child. And this will kind of only cause a little bit more friction between the two. I suppose after this point, the Battle of Alicia has happened. Caesar has conquered, brought it into the yoke of empire. Caesar is going to come back to Rome. Now, this is where it's going to get quite interesting, and this is where the kind of Shakespearean style starts to bleed in, and the real interesting story gets to kick in for why a civil war will happen. And a main reason is Julius Caesar, as a proconsul and as a consul, if you have a very high elected position in Rome, you effectively have diplomatic immunity. Nobody can sue you for doing something bad. And Julius Caesar at this point is being accused by some of his enemies for like genocide and for illegal wars and for, you know, let's say he he finances his own legions. That's also illegal. He's done a lot of shady illegal stuff. And he, what he needs to do is he needs to jump from proconsul to proconsul or from proconsul to consul, make sure he gets that diplomatic immunity and continue it for the rest of his life. And Pompey will want to do something similar. But now that he doesn't have an ally in Rome, he's in a very tricky predicament where he's going to go, I need to ensure that I get an elected position or I'm going to be dragged through the courts. I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life. And no matter how much money I have, I'm going to be stripped of my wealth. Pompey is going to become like the powerhouse of Roman politics and my career will be over. And this is where we have the infamous event where Julius Caesar will cross the Rubicon. The Rubicon is a river in northern Italy where Caesar is meant to disband his armies before he crosses this river. And by crossing it, it will definitely show that he has the intentions, like Sulla before him, to march on Rome. The line that will often be attributed to this when Julius Caesar decides to cross the Rubicon will be that the die is cast. This is He is now playing effectively a massive game of blind chess or, you know, gin or poker or whatever card game you want to describe it as. He's about to bring several legions across and march on Rome. And this is very awkward because Pompey is in Rome at the time, but they actually don't have armies. Uh, Pompey's armies are located in Hispania at this point, and it will take time and energy to transport them back where they're needed. And at the moment, this is very dangerous because Julius Caesar is now marching on Rome. When he does eventually uh, bring it to Rome, uh, Pompey and the Senate, the majority of the Senate, will evacuate and head towards Greece and try and effectively re-establish their army, bring it together, get involved, get ready to um, to deal with Caesar because it's very obvious now that he wants to march on Rome and declare himself either dictator or consul or get involved in that. It's also quite notable that en route to Rome, any little resistance that he does get from any of kind of the just smaller local armies the thing Caesar is going at, like he knows he's going into civil war here. He has the one thing he has going for him because he's committed all kinds of crimes. He has so many, you know, he's back to having debts again and everything. But he does have crazy popularity because he's been sending back his battle reports. He's been building himself up as a hero. He's added so much territory to the empire, so he cannot lose his popularity. Or yeah, he's lost everything. So any resistance he sees, 
uh, you know, he defeats it easily, but then he lets the armies join his side. He doesn't have them as prisoners. He doesn't kill them. Uh, he basically, like, forgives and releases any of the commanders. He is just, he's playing nice, and he's just keeping popular opinion on his side as much as possible so that people within Italy themselves might start coming to his army instead of coming with the official Republican one. Another note I'd like to mention, um, Caesar was offered, effectively, the option of a triumph. He was effectively bribed with one because he wants to come back to Rome and run again for government and make sure he gets that diplomatic immunity. And he's offered a triumph. And in a very spectacular, chaotic, unpredictable sort of way, he decides to forgo a triumph, which he may never see again. They're so rare, just so he could run for consul instead. And that kind of shows his importance that he needs this diplomatic immunity and that it was so important for him. So I suppose with the stage set, Caesar has gotten himself down in Italy. He's now in control of effectively that area of Rome. He is in open civil war with the Senate. He has his armies ready to go. The armies that are fanatically loyal to Caesar because effectively he's the guy who pays their bills. He's now going to get involved effectively with battling his arch nemesis, the remaining member of the triumvirate, uh, Pompey. So yeah, Caesar, he gets back into Italy, he can regroup, build up his army, he declares himself dictator for a little bit, so then he can declare himself consul, so then it's totally legal that he's essentially dictator, so it's grand. Oh, technicalities. And uh, he heads off to Spain, you know, as, as you mentioned, this is where a big part of Pompey's army and kind of loyal power mm-hmm. base is. The remarkable thing here, really, is just how quickly Caesar deals with it. Like, this is about a month out of out of the whole campaign, taking care of southern France and Spain. Now, one thing Caesar's got going for him is he is notoriously quick. Haste is a word you could use to describe Caesar. He, he, he is calculated, he is quick, he runs at like a quicker tempo than everybody else, and he does things astronomically faster than his contemporaries, and that is both kind of frightful and impressive. Two kind of significant battles long here that are worth mentioning. There's Siege of Massalia, which is modern-day Marseille, essentially. You just have a lot of sub-commanders showing up here, like it, it kind of shows some of the loyalty that's built up for Caesar, even though... Like, really, he has no right to anything, but he's just built up such popularity. So you have, um, you know, a navy, an army led by Trebonius, navy led by a Brutus. Not the Brutus, but it was a Brutus, and it was also involved in the conspiracy to assassinate Caesar later on. But you have this multiple kind of front capture of Massalia. It was done quickly. Uh, it was done efficiently. Very low casualties taken. Solid casualties dealt out. No killing of the enemy commander. Again, it's just like keeping public opinion on his side. Done kind of swiftly and cleanly. And then this was followed up, Battle of Ilerda. This was in Spain. It was following a 27-day forced march. Caesar had an absolutely exhausted army. Like, they're a month just going as fast as possible from Italy to Spain. He took next to no casualties. Like, the history machine has him taking like 10% fewer casualties than expected. He dealt out about 90% more than expected like this was a crazily efficient army and it was a 50 50 battle according to history machine and it is an exhausted force so like this is even more impressive like this the history machine might assume that like oh, these guys are fresh and ready to go it's like no 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 they are shattered and yet they still pull this out it's very impressive yeah it, it was it was a complex battle like it's a very long kind of sequence of maneuvers and skirmishes and again like trying to do that type of thing with an exhausted army is insane 
yeah, he just, he did a terrific job. Like, he really had that maneuverability. He he just managed to take so few losses and uh, dealt a huge blow, really, to a lot of the army that I think Pompey was hoping would come over to join him in uh, Epirus. So I suppose what happens next is he has dealt with some of Pompey's army that is in effectively modern day Spain. He's had a little battle after battle. Caesar is going very well. He is on a high and he is going to go to Greece to effectively confront Pompey. Uh, And Pompey, interesting enough, through his conquests in Greece, effectively has a lot of client kingdoms that owe him a lot of favours. And he will have an interesting composition of an army that's a mixture of Pompey's usual legionaries, but also have a lot of like Greek and Eastern units involved in it. This will lead to the Battle of Derichium. And this is going to be an interesting battle because Caesar will lose to Pompey. Yeah, so this one, History Machine had it about an, another 50. There are a lot of 50-50 battles, but that's to be expected. It's a civil war. You're dealing with the, 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 the same armies on both sides. This one is interesting because it was a loss. As we mentioned before, Pompey was a legendary general and he was definitely, you know, a, a solid adversary for Caesar. And obviously they knew one another very well. They had been friends. They had been allies for a long time. But the key thing here is, while Pompey won, he just could not deal anything close to a knockout blow to Caesar. Like, he he just couldn't get a a clean hit on him, essentially. While the wins over expectation for this battle are very strong for Pompey, you look at the casualties dealt and sustained, and it's just very low on both sides. There was no long-term damage done to either army, say. Caesar was able to retreat. He was still in a vulnerable position following this retreat. He was, you know, in enemy territory, and maybe supplies were getting harder to come by but his army was more or less intact yes now this is funny enough because pompey is a a different kind of commander to caesar um he's not nearly as quick as caesar but at this point now pompey is actually quite old and these age might be starting to show that he's normally a slow commander but now he's kind of at a snail's pace he's very you know he doesn't follow up on these victories he doesn't chase down caesar's army and you know smash it and continue it he could effectively have ended this at this point and it would be a case where julius caesar is an infamous roman upstart who conquers modern france gets involved in a civil war and is beaten by Pompey. And we can have a completely different story of history here where it's very likely then that a Pompey would have become a dictator of Rome and had a similar situation. It's one of these areas of history you couldn't even possibly begin to predict what would happen after it. But Pompey does not follow up on his win, does not charge down Caesar's army, does not take them out of the game. They're still there and they're still a threat to the Roman Republic. After that second defeat, Caesar is going to have another battle with Pompey and this time he's going to rally his army He's going to have a little bit of kind of a a talk to them and effectively say, you guys really let me down last time. It's like, if you really, and and at this point, his legionaries are actually quite, um, they're embarrassed for how how poorly they performed. They're really sorry about the whole thing. They're sorry that they ran away in a retreat. They're, you know, that they fled in panic, that it it all fell apart, that that everything nearly ended. And he's like, well, you know what? For this next battle, what you got to do is you got to win this one for me. And that way you'll be forgiven. This is what we got to do. This is how we're going to do it. So this is going to be the Battle of Pharsalus. This is going to be Caesar's second engagement with Pompey, who's just after coming off a win. And this is going to be the critical battle in the Civil War. Caesar is starting off in a very bad position. What does the History Machine think about this? History Machine agrees. Caesar started in a bad position on this one. He was given a 25% chance to win this battle. But I think some of the key things that you just mentioned there are very relevant with Pompey. He was slow to pursue Caesar. He let him get away. He let him regroup. 
he was kind of maybe overthinking it. He kind of thought that maybe Caesar was leading him into a trap, which wasn't really there. And, and I think one of the key differences as well in this whole civil war is that Caesar answered to Caesar, you know, he didn't have to take from anyone else, and he would refer to himself in the third person like that as well. Um, yes. In his dispatches, <laughs> fun fact. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, Whereas then Pompey, he was kind of, he was second-guessing himself lots. He was answering to kind of, you know, some of the loyal Roman senators and, you know, politicians, aristocrats. Mm. And, and, and really, deep down, I think Pompey knew he could starve out Caesar at this point. Caesar was kind of in a corner of Greece. He could be sieged out over time. Very much so. A lot of the people supporting Pompey wanted it to be ended quickly, and they kind of pushed him to take a battle that he, even though he had the bigger army, he didn't really want to take it. You were very right, the whole idea is he was going to try and starve out Caesar, but under a little bit of kind of, you know, people with a stick poking a bear, it's like, you know, this is costing us money. You know, you've got a bigger army. And at this point, the senators are effectively accusing Pompey, you know what, you're meant to be the great, Pompey the great. And right now you're looking like Pompey the coward, you know. And even though he's favourite to win, 75%, definitely the favourite. He's got an army nearly twice the size. It is a different composition. It's twice the size. It has a combination of legionaries and we'll say Greek and allied troops. But... By all means, Caesar should be done. And the big thing about this battle, Pompey heavily outnumbers Caesar's cavalry. What is the obvious tactic for this, and it tends to be a very common tactic, if you have more cavalry than the enemy, you're almost always the favourite to win. Because your cavalry can chase down, and uh, you know, say quantity and quality here now, you'd want, you know, they have to be fairly decent cavalry as well. But uh, if you have more than the enemy, you can chase them down, you can ride them off the battlefield, uh, like Hannibal did it in Cannae, riding off the Roman cavalry and wheeling around and engulfing them. Pompey is the favourite here because he has more troops, he has more cavalry, and, and the obvious plan is for Pompey to get his cavalry, smash into Caesars, blow them away take them off the battlefield, wheel around and do an envelopment, and then there we go, Caesar is finally defeated, we're done and dusted. Uh, funnily enough, the shape of this battlefield, the way that they're deployed, there will be effectively a body and mass of water that will prevent one of the flanks being from used. So both Caesar and Pompey will put their cavalry on one side to smash into each other. Caesar cleverly will hide anti-cavalry units among his cavalry with spears and javelins so that when Pompey does engage in this battle and his cavalry run into him they will come to a shocking surprise and find these anti-cavalry units there that will turn the tables defeat Pompey's cavalry who will get spooked and flee the battlefield instead and now we have the exact plan but in a mirror option where Caesar will have an envelopment that will wrap around Pompey's army and pull its way through at this point as well, and for this battle, Caesar will stress that he wants to spare as much of the Italians, the Romans and the Italian allies as possible, but he's going to deal it and stick it to the to the Greeks and the Asian units here. Just the whole idea of we'll massacre them, but we'll look for forgiveness from the, from the Italians because, you know, it is a civil war. Every person who dies here from Rome is effectively, you're killing one of your own potential legionnaires. And, you know, again... He needs to keep popular support. To have any hope of maintaining his army, he needs the popular support. He does. Because he's he does. not as official, I guess, as Pompey is. Yeah, so I suppose the significant thing with the stats really, like, it was a big underdog win for Caesar. He only had 25% chance to win. He dealt out solid, you know, casualties above aver above what was expected, maybe about 19% more than expected, but not overwhelming because, as you said, he wanted to spare a lot of the Italian troops. But his casualties sustained he was outnumbered almost you know two to one and he took so few casualties in this one like an absolute tiny amount so again you just see like caesar 
he's he's good at balancing like when to be cautious and when to strike. That that seems to be one of the traits that comes up a lot here. He he can be very good at protecting his own army when he needs to. Uh, so yeah, this was a decisive win anyway for Caesar and sent Pompey fleeing to Egypt. Yes. So Pompey pretty much uh, effectively has a lot of favors to call in. And the biggest one is he's got favors to call in from Egypt. So his goal here would be to go to Egypt, raise another army and effectively take on Caesar again. Kind of like a, oh, okay. Now, at this point, Pompey has actually not lost a battle. This is his first loss. And he's kind of taken it well to a certain extent, but he does decide to go to Egypt. He's going to rally up some more support, get some more troops trying. He still does have legionnaires loyal to him in North Africa. This, you know, like, he, he still has a chance. But funnily enough, Ptolemy Thirteenth, who's a direct descendant of the Ptolemy we know from our episode on Egypt and also our episode on Alexander the Great, they will kind of come up with an idea of, you know what, we don't really want to... We owe a lot of money and a lot of favours to this fellow and he's just after losing a very important battle and we'd like to be on Rome's good sides and we reckon Rome is Julius Caesar. So they will infamously behead Pompey. They will present, when Julius Caesar comes to visit, Pompey's head. And this terribly upsets Caesar. So the second member of the Triumvirate is now dead. Julius Caesar is furious at this because he has a reputation of constantly, you know, beating people, beating Romans, and then forgiving them. And they owe him favours and they're involved in his thing. Mm. And a personal friend. Yeah, and he was like, you know, he was his friend. He was his, one of his closest allies for years prior to the Civil War. Like, they may have been enemies in this war, but they were still bros, you know. So really, Ptolemy's attempt to gain Caesar's favour and in intervention in the Civil War backfired Horribly, it sent Caesar right to the other side because now he wanted to avenge Pompey's death, essentially. Yes. And uh, just quickly before we get into that, I suppose, now that the second member of the Triumvirate is gone, we should go quickly through his stats in the database. So Pompey, we had four of his battles. He won three. Solid wins over expectation. Definitely a very good general. About 20, you know, 0.23 wins over expectation. Other than that, though, most of his stats are fairly average, and I think maybe plays into the fact that his loss hurt him a lot, because that was... That's true. That was a battle he should have won. I think also just the fact that he made his name largely in battles that he was go always going to win, really. He was fighting against slave rebellions. They were not well-equipped. They had no money. They had no backing. Like, he was always going to win those, really. And I think the history machine kind of sees through the propaganda a bit and doesn't overly reward him. It wouldn't have given him three triumphs. Triumphs. It thinks he was good, but it doesn't think he was one of the best ever. Yes. I suppose a great thing to mention about it is because he does have well-equipped, well-drilled legionaries that the AI history machine has looked at and says, listen, this is a fantastic unit type. I mean, if you had these, like the real test here for Pompey would have been this civil war. And he did win a battle against Caesar, but the idea being that he would lose the second one uh, shows the inconsistencies of how well he actually was as a commander for this. Possibly it was a case of big fish, small pond. Now, you know, <laughs> like he might have been a very big fish in a relatively small pond. But the idea being that I'd say had you given him, I would expect anyway, Colin, maybe you would agree with me. If we hypothetically put Pompey and gave him a full Greek army, I'd say he would favour even worse because he's just... Yeah, he had his advantages came from his unit composition largely. And then once it was the same type of army going up against him, mm. he kind of, he did no better than expected, than average yes, really. Very much so. Quite predictable in what he does normally. Nothing, he's nothing 
particularly spectacular. That said, he's going to be like miles better than your average bog standard commander. But the idea being, if we're looking at one of the greatest of all time, we're looking at a top 10 list. Pompey's not on it. No. He just he just doesn't make the cut. A few triumphs okay. too many. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. So I suppose we'll move on then that Caesar is now in Egypt. Uh, he's effectively becomes a POW for Ptolemy the, the 13th for, for some time. But he ends up getting involved in the siege of Alexandria. And you might recognize that from our very first episode when we were talking about Cleopatra, uh, where she was a sub commander with Caesar in this one. We have already gone quite in depth into this battle, but in the summary, uh, Caesar wins. The Roman forces are relieved by Mithridates, and tragically for the world, this is a battle where the burning of the Library of Alexandria happens, and a lot of records are lost. Again, Caesar does well in this. It didn't give him great odds to win this. Um, you know, he's he is kind of in enemy territory. He's getting. Wrapped up now in a different civil war. So, yeah. you know, earlier he had siege within siege. Now he has a civil war within a civil war. I heard you like civil wars. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he did well. He dealt out some high casualties by his standards, about 45% higher uh, than expected. I suppose this and, is a great yeah. example, though, that uh, these are not Roman troops and he does not, yeah. they don't have a vote, so he doesn't care. Yeah, <laughs> he's happy to, t- to get rid of them. Yeah. Uh, while preserving his own army quite well. So yes, yeah, as, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, from there he pushes on. He's decided, you know, screw Ptolemy, mm-hmm. he killed my friend. I'm going to side with Cleopatra in this civil mm-hmm. war. And they push on to the Battle of the Nile. Yes. So at this one, uh, Ptolemy the Thirteenth is defeated by Caesar and Cleopatra. And effectively, Cleopatra now begets to be the head of Egypt. Uh, however, Egypt is effectively a puppet state now controlled by Rome. That is going to have a lot of complications in it. Caesar will also effectively have an affair with Cleopatra and have a child with her, which will be a very awkward situation for Caesar back at home because he is married and he doesn't actually have any heirs. So it's a complicated, awkward situation. Before, you know, while Caesar himself stalled in, in Egypt with mm-hmm. being with uh, Cleopatra, I'm also just going to stall in Egypt a little bit longer because I want to highlight... Ptolemy the 13th, because mm-hmm. the history machine regards him as the joint worst general in the database with more than one <laughs> battle. Um, now we only have a couple of his battles in the database, That's but true. wins over expectation of minus 0.633. Jesus so, Christ. Like, he's absolutely abysmal. Uh, he takes about 44% more casualties than you'd <laughs> expect him to. He deals out way fewer than you'd expect him to. The average battle... He, Probably either he or one of his sub-commanders is going, say, once every four battles, you know, if he was able to have that many. He's just bad. He is effectively a, a boy king or a young teenager, yeah. but even with that in mind, it shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's up against Caesar and some other formidable Romans. Yeah. So the apple has fallen very far from the tree in terms of being a descendant from his ancestor. With that said, uh, as he's, he's, he's a boy king. He's, he's a yeah. young adult. He was he's bad not... tactically and he was bad strategically in killing Pompey it was just yeah it, it did not work out for yeah. him pretty terrible situation but that that also might be a byproduct of years of effectively inbreeding as well that I imagine that couldn't have been good for them <laughs> so uh I suppose uh if we move on from this here now we will say that uh Caesar effectively has Egypt quelled it's now going to be brought in as a bit of a vassal state for Rome it'll be a puppet state we're going to move on that there's a little bit of political unrest and Caesar is going to have to attack 
Pontus. Uh, this is an area that effectively Pompey made his name for. It will effectively be one of Caesar's most famous little kind of uh, speeches or sayings when he deals with Pontus, and it's the I came, I saw, I conquered, which in Latin is Veni, Vidi, Vici, which I think sounds way better for the alliteration alone. Yep. <laughs> and I don't think the translation came across at that, where it's just like V, 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 baby, yeah. triple, triple V all the way. I think, you know, we've already said like Caesar, he wrote his own dispatches. He made sure the people heard about them. He liked to big himself up. So to come back with a three word description of his battle, this, it just highlights this was a stroll in the park for him. Like, because he loved to big up his battles. He loved to make them seem more significant yeah. than they were. So this was, like, if he was willing to kind of brush this aside, mm. that's kind of interesting in itself. Effectively, the civil war still isn't quite over. Pompey has been dealt with. This is a side battle. But the speed at which Caesar deals with this panics the remaining members of the civil war because they went he could get bogged down in this for two or three years we have some time now to you know regroup redo whatever but he has this place blown out in like no time and then they go oh whoa hold on this you know like we thought we had more time to deal with it so i suppose if you want to go into some of the stats with the battle of zella battle of zella pontus had superior numbers and solid position History Machine gave it about 50-50 battle, you know, maybe Roman unit composition making up for the for losses. For lack of numbers. In, you know, yeah, la lack yeah. of numbers. Pontus just gave up their better defensive position and they decided to just attack the Roman army going uphill in, uh, in a frontal assault. <laughs> so they just gave up any tactical advantage they had whatsoever. Pharnaces the second, he was kind of going for the element of surprise, but the only reason it's surprising is because it's such a terrible idea and most people wouldn't yeah. think to do that. So, um... Maybe like the initial like, oh God, what are you doing? But then, I mean, you know, Caesar made his name fighting Gauls where the whole thing was like, let them charge you and then just wait it out and... And then deal with it afterwards. Yeah. So. Yeah, this one was very straightforward for Caesar. Very mm. easy battle. He dealt 83% more casualties than expected. So... Once again, if you don't, if you don't have a vote, he does not care. <laughs> so uh, this one was handed to him and that is why it's Vinny Vidi Vici. Like it was a straightforward side quest. On to North Africa now. Yes. Now, here, this is going to be quite interesting because Caesar finds himself in North Africa. He's going to be dealing up with the rest of the civil war. So one of his sub-commanders in Gaul, Titus Labinus, who is effectively Caesar's right-hand man, when Caesar crosses the Rubicon, Titus Labinus is held up in Gaul. He is in charge of contingency legions that are left there, that are wintered there, that are going to be staying in Gaul. And he is both shocked and appalled and annoyed that Caesar had gone through with this march on Rome, but never really informed Titus, didn't give him any information about it. And Titus decides that he will join the other side of the civil war because of this. Titus Labinus is definitely a good commander. He is, you know, he's one of Caesar's underlings. He's very important, really, for how well they did in Gaul. And it's funny now that he will actually be going against Caesar in North Africa. And he will effectively deal Caesar, which arguably will be a loss, but we have considered to actually put this down as a draw, and I will explain why. The history machine does record effectively tactical information. This battle against Titus Labinus will be undeniably a phenomenal strategic loss for Caesar, because he's after the winning streak of beating Pompey, beating, uh, going to Pontus and wrecking the joint, and really has this now aura of invincibility and one of his previous sub-commanders deals him not necessarily a loss but a draw and the reason I won't call it a loss is it is a sub-section of Caesar's army that goes against Titus Labinius 
they do find themselves in a terrible situation, but through a bit of quick witted and mindfulness, they're actually able to break out and escape with most of the army. And Titus Labinus does not, let's say, envelop them and surround them and chase them down and destroy them. And Caesar is able to lose quite a heavy amount of his troops, but both save his own life and the life of most of his legionnaires. And that in itself is definitely a win for Caesar in a sense of this should be where it ends for him. It doesn't. And this should have been a situation where he is butchered and his troops are butchered and his civil war claim is over. And it's not. So it's definitely a win for Caesar in a sense that he gets to survive and he gets to salvage most of his legionnaires that are in this battle. It's definitely a loss then that the idea that this happened in the first place and that he has lost his strategic reputation. So that is why this is really classified. We have very few draws in the database, but this is Mm. this is one of them. It is. Yeah, it is definitely depending who you ask whether it's a draw or a loss. But I think it's just like he should have been wiped out here. He had to like. According to some reports, he had to personally basically like grab some subcommanders or grab some people beneath him and tell them to like turn back around, you're not retreating here. You know, it was it was that He can inspire confidence. The Numidian cavalry used against him, they had such better mobility, they were constantly harassing, they were able to get in very close, but Caesar just managed to launch kind of peel a charge going both directions. It was total desperation thing. But basically, he was just able to keep fending off Titus Albinius' army long enough that they also got exhausted and they just couldn't quite uh, take out Caesar's army and eventually just had to back off themselves to regroup. Uh, Definitely. Now, I just want to mention a couple of things about it. Uh, We did mention that effectively Titus Albinius has his hands on Numidian cavalry. And if you remember from our episodes on the Punic Wars... These are the North African cavalry that Hannibal will use to cause so much hassle to the Romans and also Scipio Africanus will use against Hannibal in his win in Zama. So effectively, we can't really overstress how important and how powerful and, you know, how effective the Numidian cavalry is. Is definitely a big strategic win over Caesar in the sense of Titus Labinius has his hands on the on Numidian cavalry and we're not, you shouldn't be too surprised that they've actually caused Caesar such a lot of hassle. Uh, Titus Labinius himself actually will have his horse killed by being hit by a stray javelin and it really shows how close it is to both Titus Labinius and Julius Caesar being killed in this battle. So in that sense as well we could also say that it's close to a draw. I'm sure the the Roman senators at the time were delighted in the sense of we've shown that effectively a draw or a potential loss for Caesar has happened, we've crushed his reputation and the civil war is still a thing, it's still on. It's the kind of battle where if it had maybe happened earlier where you know, maybe Pompey was still around and some of his armies were still around, Caesar wouldn't have been able to regroup. But at this stage, he already had the upper upper hand in the war as a whole. So it just really wasn't anything near enough uh, what was needed to knock him out. Okay, so I suppose, do you want to go into a little bit of the stats of her this particular battle and how it runs, considering it's going to be Caesar's draw? <laughs> Yet again, uh, roughly 50-50 odds. Titus did a very good job here. He protected his own unit. You know, we mentioned it did get close. He had his own horse taken out from underneath him. But he never really lost many of his own men in this. It, he, uh, his casualties suffered were well below expectation. Caesar did take more of a loss than he usually does, definitely. He lost about uh, 32% more than expected, according to the history machine in this one. So it was it was definitely a risky situation for him. And... You know, while it wasn't his entire army or anything, like, it's definitely one of those situations where Caesar himself could have died. Like, it was, 
it was such an up close and personal battle like it's just very very risky definitely you could you could make an argument for a loss rather than a draw but it really depends on on how you view it and in a sense it's de- it it is so it's definitely a strategic loss for caesar but the history machine in this case it wouldn't see too much of a difference between a draw and a loss anyway to a certain extent it will really look at the figures and numbers it's just it's just an idea that it it will show that this wasn't it definitely wasn't a win we'll put it that way there's no way caesar could claim this is yeah. a win but you know surviving with his life and with the remaining of his troops is definitely you know it's definitely an impressive feat so i suppose caesar is now still in north africa uh, we're going to move on to the battle of thaspas and this is going to be very interesting for a number of reasons. The first is, there is a little bit of like a prophecy that a Scipio can never lose a battle in North Africa. And this kind of spooks the uh, Caesar side a little bit to an extent. And then he follows up by saying, but don't you know, we have a small sub-lieutenant in our army who's also a Scipio. (laughs) And they put him there and say, well, definitely, no matter what happens in this situation, a Scipio will win in North Africa. So don't worry about that little prophecy (laughs) because he is going to be up against uh, Scipio, uh, one of the descendants of the famous Africanus, Uh, definitely of that family that have a rich military tradition. And the second thing that's going to be very important about this... We're going to have a return of elephants, keeping on the... uh, The African theme. However, this is is kind of an example of, like, aside from the fact that elephants are rare and hard to breed and take up a lot of food, this battle is kind of an example of why they're they're just not a good idea. They're just too high of a risk a lot of the time. Elephants only seem to work if you have the elephant of surprise. The, the elephant of surprise. <laughs> surprise! <laughs> yeah, if you have the elephant of surprise, then uh, the, enemy's, the enemy doesn't really know what to do with them. The elephants will run in and trample. They'll cause a lot of panic. And the key to ancient warfare seems to be to panic the enemy and get them to rout and run away. And elephants seem to do a good job at that. But if your troops are used to elephants and they're familiar with them, they've got a lot of problems. One, they're a linear animal. They will kind of march forward. You can't really sway your elephant to go left and right that well. They're not as movable as cav- cavalry. They can be spooked. They tend to go on rampages. They can go out of control. They're just as likely to turn and stomp your own troops. Um, they spook. They can spook your cavalry as well as the enemy cavalry. And the last thing is they're very expensive. They're very hard to breed. And they're not that well domesticated. So they've got a lot of problems. And Caesar is now, a, for want of a better term, a civilized army. And they will know how to deal with elephants. It's not going to be, it's not going to have that shock factor that you would expect. But, um, but anyway, uh, so they do make, they do make an appearance in this battle. So it's just something worth noting because they're rare and they're fun. But their, their main feature in this battle though, is that Caesar's army basically just sends them into a panic intentionally and they just trample, uh, (laughs) their own men. They, they just trample the, uh, Republican side. So it does not go well for them at all. Yeah, History Machine, really, at this stage, I think it's clear that Caesar has gotten the upper hand in the battle. History Machine, um, seeing the army compositions, like, despite the presence of elephants, it still gave Caesar the advantage in this one. Doesn't see anything too remarkable with his stats. Like, this was a solid. He was more likely than not to win this one. He's one of the last experienced commanders. No major casualties on either side it seems to be a common theme among Caesar when he's against Italian troops he wants to spare them as much as he can because he's all about forgiveness that's what he wants to do you know it's just it's it's his shtick it's it's where he wants to go really with it he has that set aside and we're going to move on to the final battle of the civil war this will be where he's going to clean up the last of Pompey's forces or people who would have been loyal to Pompey and this is the battle of Munda so Caesar is outnumbered 
he's in a bad initial position, yeah. but his armies have maintained their composure long enough effectively to capitalize on a mistake from the other side. It's going to be a scrappy battle. Caesar himself will say in, about this battle that this is the one, this is the particular battle where he had the highest chance of losing his life. He's like, you know, this is where he, he, he didn't fight to win. He fought to survive. It's an, it's a terrible frontal assault up a slope, which is never a good idea. It's going to be a battle here against uh, Titus Labinius, a man who has arguably already beaten Caesar, who knows all of his tricks, who's familiar with them. Caesar probably shouldn't be taking this battle. It's just that, you know, it's, it's the timing. This is kind of to wrap up the war. He kind of has to push on. But it does feel like it's a relatively even battle. And given the general and given the terrain, like it only gave a Caesar, again, like roughly one in four chance to win this one at the initial. What does the history machine think in terms of our casualties, our wins? How How is it looking for Caesar in this last of the battles? A very bad initial position. And really it was just something we see a lot, even back to the early days against the Gauls. One thing he was good at was really just kind of hanging on in close battles and just waiting until he... Either the enemy army wore themselves out or until he spotted an opportunity. This opportunity came when Titus Labinius, he maneuvered to intercept a rear cavalry attack that Caesar sent around. And there was just a bit of confusion in the army. They misinterpreted and they thought he was retreating. They totally lost their organization. And that's when Caesar was finally able to come in and crush them, essentially. Titus was killed in this battle. History Machine has it as Caesar dealing out about 38% more casualties than expected really you know everything considered takes casualties in this but not nearly as many as they thought he would um like he had very low casualties on his own side and uh yeah the the enemy commander kills weren't expected either so this despite the very very difficult start this ended up being a big win for caesar and this more or less ends his civil war before we go on that i suppose now since he's died you know we've Anyone who managed to deal out a non-win to Caesar, I think, is is worth noting. So, Titus Labinius, three battles in the database, given one and a half wins. Definitely a very interesting character, started out on the same side as Caesar, went against him later on. History Machine, it doesn't give him huge wins over expectation. Now, that would go up more if you grant that, if you count that, what we count as a draw, if you count would that a as higher. a win for him, then his wins over expectation are very solid. So... I think I think you can say like you know it, it gives them about average wins over expectation, but I think you could probably yeah. push it up to probably something similar to Pompey, maybe. Well, you know what? He has something in common between himself, Pompey, and Vercingetorix. They're pretty much the three. We'll say the three people who who will give Caesar a hard time. I can't imagine Crassus giving Caesar a hard time at this point. You know, no. So it's just the case of uh, no. Titus Labinius no. effectively you know, <laughs> worked with Caesar. You know, it is yeah. definitely, he, he's got to be considered a very good commander. As you said, probably equal to Pompey, which is saying a good bit, considering Pompey has had three triumphs. Actually, in terms of wins over expectation, you would say similar to Pompey. In terms of, you know, offensive, defensive kind of uh, statistics, he's much more similar to first in Gedericks. He can deal out damage. He can definitely deal out damage. But he isn't great defensively either. And he ends up taking a lot more damage than you'd like. And you saw it in that last battle there at Battle Munda. So, like, while his casualties dealt above expectation are about 27% higher than the average general, his casualties sustained are still 16% higher. You know, it's, it's kind of similar figures as well. The, his odds of killing the enemy commander, definitely well above average, but 
the odds of his own commanders or himself getting killed or captured also a good bit higher. So um, very solid general kind of usually gets the job done. But I think just given the fact that maybe he just came in too late when Caesar already had too much power. Definitely. It was never yeah. going to end. Well, I suppose if, if he went against Caesar, it was likely Caesar might have. Funny enough, I'd say if Titus survived this battle, Caesar probably would have forgiven him. That seems to be his uh, his little back trick it's like well listen you're going to be in debt for me forever yeah. but i'm going to forgive you give you a pardon you know if you ever think of the idea of a governor yeah. you know giving a pardon caesar is probably where that comes from <laughs> just gonna pardon you for that don't worry about it yeah you have to remember at all time throughout most of his life a lot of caesar's motivation comes from his own desire to have his own debts forgiven so uh you know if if, if he can kind of if he can get a get a few favors to call in at any time or you know show people a bit of mercy here or there when he knows that they could be in position of power later on he'll always kind of he'll he'll give that historically after this what really happens to caesar everyone knows he gets assassinated but what generally does happen is he finally comes home and he decides to have that long-awaited triumph that he was denied that he decided to put aside to run for office instead vercingetorix who is captured all the way back in the battle of alicia effectively about six years ago six years before this event is in chains in rome the whole time and will be paraded through rome while while caesar's legionaries will effectively have this lovely triumph and uh he will be ritually strangled then outside of the temple of saturnalia now the romans don't practice human sacrifice but a lot of people would say that's pretty close to it the whole idea that you decide to take some pow's put them outside the temple and kill them yeah. there you know because let's just do that so they they claim to be a little bit advanced and they don't practice human sacrifice but in a strange way they do they'll act all cultured but then they will have a mile of crucifixions along the road or you know strangle the that enemy king from six years ago, you know, it's... Now, uh, funnily, uh, with the triumph, it is the only legal way that you're allowed to march into Rome and effectively have your army not be disbanded because for the day, and this is a very fun event, if you are a commander or conqueror or general and you are marching into Rome, you get to bring your army in, they have their parade, your face is painted red to represent Jupiter, you are on a chariot and you're wheeled through Rome and you effectively go through and have a little bit of a tour. This may have been done early in Triumphs, but it was definitely done around the time of Marcus Aurelius, where you would have a slave in the chariot beside you, constantly whispering into your ear, uh, don't forget you're mortal. Just, just in case. Yeah, uh, don't forget you're mortal. <laughs> because... Don't get carried away, yeah. <laughs> get carried away now. Especially because we've you dressed up as a god. So um, so the idea is it's a, it's a wonderful event. You're eight times more likely to be a consul than you are to get one of these. Uh, this will be remembered forever. Your ancestors, you can always say, my granddad, my great-granddad, my whatever, had a triumph. It's a lot of prestige to your family. So Caesar getting to have one is definitely the icing on the cake. He goes back to Rome. And he effectively keeps running back-to-back -back consuls. He is elected. He's changing a lot of laws. He has effectively quelled the Republic. And he decides, you know what, I, I'll put aside pretending to be a Republic. And I'm just going to declare myself dictator, which is a political office in Rome that is usually appointed when there's an absolute emergency. It happened during the Punic Wars. It happens during a couple of invasions. Um, Sulla is the... is one of the earlier people who does decide to do it to be the dictator until the constitution is fixed, which is effectively he implements his reforms. But Julius Caesar takes it a little step further and says, I am going to be dictator for life. So I don't have to answer whatever. I don't have to run, a, run an elections anymore. He's effectively gotten the Roman system and he is trying to effectively become 
an emperor. Even though an emperor is not a thing yet in Rome, it will take another generation before they're not even called emperors, but there will be somebody who is the princeps, who is the head of Rome, who effectively in all name is, is in charge of this empire. And that will actually be Caesar's nephew. We'll probably come to him at some point, Octavian, later known as Augustus Caesar. But Caesar decides to effectively, this is his cardinal mistake. He decides he is going to become dictator for life. And before he is elected, he is brought into the Senate House. Actually, he's brought into uh, uh, Pompey's building, funnily enough, one that has a big statue of Pompey. Uh, I don't know, you can take some kind of poetic justice from that. And he is brutally stabbed to death by the senators of Rome. Now, infamously, this is quite the event. Uh, it's immortalised by William Shakespeare. It's very, it's it's adamant in pop culture. Everyone recognises it as the, you know, Julius Caesar's assassinated, the Ides of March, all of that. It is a very big event, but you can actually look at the people who were involved in it, the senators and the collaborators that were involved in the assassination of Caesar. It is one of the most messy coups in history because they effectively kill a man who is in charge of the popular party, you know, where the average Romans kind of like him. Because say what you want about Caesar, he did a lot of games, he had the common folk on his side and a bunch effectively of pissed off aristocrats decided we're going to murder him have nobody to put it in his place let's assume everything goes back to normal just after he's dead and that'll all be fine we'll deal with the consequences later instead of like filling that power vacuum they effectively leave it wide open for another roman civil war just to absolutely spiral from there. So Caesar's assassination only leads to bad problems, especially when Caesar's will is read out and it turns out he leaves a vast amount of his wealth to the general public and they get incredibly annoyed to find out that, hold on, this is a person who was so nice that when he died, he left us a load of money and you decided to kill him. Who are you to do it? Um, so I suppose with Caesar dead, with Caesar aside, go through some of Caesar's stats now that he has finally, he's disappeared from our podcast. So Caesar... He has the second most battles in our database of anyone. We have 17 in there, uh, 14 and a half wins. Wins over expectation is 0.502, which is very high. That's 10th best for any general with over three battles, fourth best for anyone with over five, and the best rating of anyone with a loss on their record. Beyond that, interestingly, though, the stats don't pop out massively. His casualties dealt above expectation are, you know, that is good. That's 0.35. His... Like, they're all good, but none of them are great. But it does tie into, I think, something which, in a way, kind of makes Caesar more impressive. It's that it's it's a lot of the stuff that the history machine can't capture because it's tactical. We mentioned a lot of times where he purposely didn't try and wipe out the enemy army because he wanted to turn them to his side afterwards. So, like, he probably could have had higher stats for casualties dealt or commanders captured or things like that, but he purposely didn't. Um... However, on the other side, there is the element of, of Caesar's well, where the sources that we're using for so many of the battles, they were his sources, they were his descriptions. So you do all, and you do have to take everything with, even, you know, anything this far back in history, you have to take with a grain of salt. It's not going to be totally accurate. But when you know that this was his propaganda, this was him trying to get people back in Rome on his side, you do have to wonder, like, were the battles necessarily as difficult as he made them out to be? Should those win, you know, his wins over expectation are very high because he often felt faced either big Gallic army, armies or very similar Roman ones. And you kind of wonder, maybe should that be toned down a little bit? But um, either way, anyway, I think regardless, just through the sheer number of wins and the sheer number of battles, he is up there as one of the most impressive generals in the database. Now, funnily enough, we have 
Caesar put aside, but one of the hypotheticals that constantly comes up, and we've decided to actually crunch the numbers for it, it's often debated who would win in a battle, Caesar or Alexander the Great. Now, Cahill, I actually asked you to, to, to run some of the stats, getting one of their average armies together, pulling the average composition. Let's throw them in, churn them out, and see what it would be like. And we actually got some really interesting results. The first thing I want to say is they actually roughly have about the same number of troops just when they deploy their armies, which is very, very, um, very interesting. Alexander has a bit of a cavalry advantage, about 13 to 14% of his army is cavalry. Caesar generally has between 10, 10 to 13, averaging around 12.5%. Yeah. The infantry proportion then is Caesar has a bit more, but they roughly have about around the 33,000 mark. What exactly would happen in a battle if we got Alexander the Great and uh, Julius Caesar. Now we're going to make a couple of assumptions. Uh, the first one would be, it's not like we just have Julius Caesar knows everything yeah. about Alexander and Alexander doesn't know who he's against. This would be as if there was some kind of hypothetical, we'll get both of them to, you know, battle each other on a clear open plane. Um, there'll be no sieges, there'll be, there'll be no fortification equipment. It's not like the Romans had time to build a camp. It will just be a straight yeah. up pitched yeah. battle. And it would be like if we gave it a little bit of time for Alexander to learn who is Julius Caesar, you know, just to, just, you know, so he knows exactly what's going on. It's not like he's never seen legionnaires before. So it's just kind of using that if you had an Alexander grow up around the time of Julius Caesar, had the Alexandrian army and took on Julius Caesar, what would it look like? So, Cahill, do you want to go through some of the stats and some of the uh, the possibilities? Okay, so, so I think there are some interesting points in this one. So... As mentioned, History Machine, it gives Caesar a very high wins over expectation because he took on big armies, he took on very similar armies. And this does give him the advantage over Alexander. Even though Alexander never lost, he was mostly fighting armies that the History Machine considered yes. weaker. He was fighting a waning empire. And also, as we mentioned, because he had so many battles and he never lost, he slightly broke the History Machine's assumptions that it just went, this is the best army composition, and if it's this place, this time, no one's beating him. As we mentioned, Caesar's wins of exploitation may be a bit overrated, Alexander's a bit underrated, but this is the way the machine works. So it thinks that if both of them had the exact same army, it would reach a 50-50 odds when Caesar had about 90% the size of Alexander's with the same composition. However... You you go with their their different compositions. It does think Alexander's was better, so in that case, Caesar has to go up to having ninety five percent the size of Alexander's army when they have their normal compositions. I think one more note as well. These are all going basically on just pure wins over expectation, which, as I said, like Caesar had very high, but he didn't pop out in other areas. And one thing that's worth pointing out is that the History Machine does still think that Alexander had a really good chance that he could have taken out Caesar personally. Like, he could have bypassed the army. Time for the cavalry charge. <laughs> and just killed Caesar directly. Which, like, most... That's not a factor for most generals, but with Alexander, you can just never rule it out. It's always a really high chance. That's the bread and butter for the Macedonian armies. So really what you have is a very, a very, very close, very 50-50 battle with really depending on, you know, if Alexander can get close to Caesar, Alexander wins. Otherwise, it's it's a Caesar. So in rough expectations, the idea is Caesar is a is the is the Vegas favorite to win. Effectively, he's he's got about a fifty five percent chance or so to win the battle. Yeah. 
he should win most of them if you know this is also assuming that let's say you could run this battle 20 or 30 times you'll have different outcomes but if we ran this let's say 20 times maybe seven out of the 20 we would have alexander the great do a fantastic cavalry charge go straight at caesar kill him and then god knows what would happen to caesar's units finding that caesar would be you know killed and paraded so the best chance is caesar is definitely the favorite to win he has a certain amount of flexibility. His troops are excellent. His legionnaires are loyal. They're, they're very powerful. They're organized. They've got a great composition. But then it looks at Alexander's army that also has like that war machine developed by his father that is also very flexible. But the advantage in cavalry is effectively if the battle goes on long enough and they're just, you know, having a heavy attrition, Julius Caesar's going to win. But if for some lucky reason, Alexander the Great decides to do a fantastic cavalry charge, which I would assume he do, and go against Caesar and break through Caesar's Roman cavalry, Alexander hasn't won. So it's really a case of uh, maybe Caesar gets lucky and similar to Pompey, puts a couple of anti-cavalry units in his cavalry and maybe takes them out and is expecting that. It's very hard to predict, but in summary, Caesar is the favourite to win. It is damn close to a coin flip. Yeah, either way. So it's actually quite fun to see that even though Caesar has a lot of his, he has his losses and he has his draws in his battle, it still says, listen, Alexander had an easy launch. So if we wanted to compare them to heavyweight boxers, you could easily say Alexander the Great is similar to a Rocky Marciano, who was an undefeated heavyweight fighter in the 1950s. Never had a loss, but actually fought in a division that didn't really have that much talent against him. Caesar is very similar uh, to a Muhammad Ali because he says he's the greatest because you know he's the greatest because he says he's the greatest he's got a lot of propaganda behind him he has a couple of losses he rope a dope to the, the Gauls in, in Alicia you know <laughs> like uh, he loses against his his nemesis uh, Pompey which is like like your smoking Joe Frazier only to come back and beat him later it's <laughs> so they actually have quite similarities if you wanted to look at them as professional fighters Caesar is in Muhammad Ali Alexander Rocky Marciano you put them against each other you're going to have a very interesting hypothetical but that's a great way to look at it but if we were betting people we'd say Caesar would beat Alexander the Great though like uh, Marciano versus Ali we should release the version in Europe where the other person wins to keep it balanced it's a very specific reference let's hope our listeners pick it up up. (laughs) so coming in at number five from the generals that we mentioned in battles for this episode so number five is Pharnaces II. He was the conquered in I came, I saw I conquered. He was not good. He has a wins over expectations of minus 2.02. Um, casualties suffered above expectation is about 56% higher than expected. And uh, yeah, it's all these reasons that Caesar was so blasé about defeating him. This was not a good general coming in at number five. But luckily, he's he's not last place because below him we have Ptolemy Thirteenth and Crassus. So, while he was bad, we did have worse this episode. So then, coming in at number four, four is Vercingetorix. Two battles, one win, one loss in the database. Pretty much the glass cannon. You know, he didn't really have a good chance against Caesar. He was never going to win. His wins over expectations is minus point one three. But honestly, like he wasn't going to like the fact that he even got one win is impressive. I'm sure he's have the verdict, give me freedom, give me death. And unfortunately, this is a, the other side of the coin for that, for that statement. Solid glass cannon. Mixed bag, but I think he did the be- as best as, as well as he could hope. So. It's a crisis situation. Yeah, you know, it's effectively omelette with bad eggs here. Uh, there's only so much he can do based on his logistics and the technological advances that the Romans would have had over the Celts at the time and the Gauls in particular. 
And it's kind of like a, you know, it, they did the best they could in terms of, of what they had. And it just shows that, you know, possibly they should have maybe sued for peace earlier or done something. But, you know, you're against Julius Caesar. It's like there's, you know, there's a lot that could go right and wrong. Hindsight will show that he is a great commander in terms of he's dealt with so many other of his contemporaries. So coming in then, please, at number three. Number three, we have Titus Labinus, who has just very narrowly above average wins over expectations, like 0 0.01 above expectation. If you round that draw up to a win, that goes up a good bit higher. I'd say you should probably be in around maybe 0.2 or so wins over expectation. But um, very, very competent general. And pro you know, I would say good to very good. Dealt a serious blow to Caesar towards the end of the war, maybe came in there a bit too late. Was on Caesar's side against the Gauls and had his own victories there as a sub-commander. Yeah, very, very solid. So our second place for this. Second place with three triumphs and three wins out of four battles in the dad base is Pompey. Uh, his wins over expectations is 0.23, so very good. Um, well above average there, significantly above average. But the other stats just all hovering very close to zero. Like, he, he gets the win, but he's not fancy. He just, he does what needs to be done and kind of, you know, the bare minimum, I suppose. But uh, did, again, was one of the few people to deal a loss to Caesar. So that's worth something in itself. The history machine very much does look at situations where if you were expected to win and you lost, and this did happen to Pompey against Julius Caesar, uh, he had an army twice the size. If you mess up something like that, it is very punishing and unforgiving. And it does not look kindly on those situations. Mm. It's very kindly if you have something like, um, if we look at our Greek episode earlier, where you have your King Leonidas, he was never expected to win. So it kind of says, listen, you know, you still did well. But if you find yeah. yourself in a position where you have an almost mirror army plus extra bonus troops, you've outnumbered your enemy two to one and you still muck that up. It's going to be pretty heavy on your reputation. And that's what's really hit Pompey. And it's why he's not. His name might have been Pompey Magnus. Mm, Pompey the Great. But not now. As, aside from his, his win over Caesar. Yeah. Like all his other battles. He was expected to win. So his rating didn't go up that much. Whereas his one loss. He should have won that. So it really hits his rating hard. Coming in number one with our triumph, he's the dictator for life. Never the emperor. But you know, he's the one that you'd always, <laughs> people would always mistake as one. Julius Caesar. Massive 17 battles, 14.5 uh, wins, 0.502 wins over expectation, dealt out 35% more casualties than expected. Yeah, just very, very strong. The numbers hold up, but uh, very, very low casualties. You know, enemy uh, commander kills or captured. But as we mentioned, that was looking ahead strategically. That was making sure that uh, no one called in all those debts he owed and that, you know, soldiers would turn to his side after defeated so there's there's a purpose. I I feel like if he had wanted to, he could have had his stats higher in there, but then he perhaps would have more decisively won the battles but lost the war. Definitely. I suppose he's a he's a phenomenal commander. He has so many battles in our database. He is very good against mirror matches. But amazingly, before he dies, he actually did have a plan, and this might have sullied his record, and he could have also found himself in a tricky situation. He was planning on invading Parthia. And that could have went uh, sideways for them as well. But uh, I suppose live fast, die relatively young. And he has come down as possibly one of the most famous people in history ever. And in a one-on-one -on -one against Alexander, he's the favourite. Our dictator for life, not quite the emperor, Julius Caesar. 
So I just want to say thanks very much for listening. We're going to close out this episode. Uh, We're actually going to have a bonus episode for you later in the month. But uh, if you do want to reach us, you can follow us on Twitter at History Machine Podcast. We have a website, historymachinepodcast.com. And you can email us at historymachinepodcast at gmail.com as well. We are open for suggestions and questions. If you want to consider something like maybe proposing an episode or having a look at maybe some stats or some hypotheticals. Thanks very much for listening. I have been Niall and my co-host is... Cole. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) So thanks very much for your time. And you'll hear from us again soon. Thanks for listening.